podcast with no name. In this three-episode arc, your merry band of podcasters is going to discuss the pop culture phenomenon known as the 27 Club. The 27 Club is a list of musicians, artists and actors who all died at the age of 27 and supposedly these creative people have done so in enough numbers that people have begun to believe that some are destined to die at age 27. Over this and the next two episodes, Jamos, Captain, Sid and I, your princess, will discuss the life and premature passing of a member of the 27 Club. Tonight, Jamos will explore the life of Robert Johnson, one of the earlier members of the 27 Club. Before we embark on our discussion of Robert Johnson, I ask, listener, is the 27 Club real? Is the 27 Club actually a thing? Whilst some notable and remarkably talented artists and musicians have passed away at age 27, thus giving them entry into the 27 Club, there are hundreds and thousands more who have not. There is arguably a 26 Club, whose members include Otis Redding, Graham Parsons, Nick Drake, Jimmy McCulloch and John Guthrie. There is arguably also a 28 Club, whose members include Tim Buckley, Gregory Herbert and Bobby Blue. And let's not forget the many, many musicians and artists who are still alive and kicking, still creating, still making music and writing poetry. And some of these people include such luminaries as the one and only Keith Richards, Paul McCartney, all of Fleetwood Mac, even Stevie Nicks, who some may say died at 27 and is a mere facsimile these days, Snoop Dogg, Billy Idol, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford and Yoko Ono. So let's start. Does the 27 Club actually exist or is it just a mere construction, a pop culture myth? Over to you, Jamos. Hello, dear listener. Um, pour yourself a nice, big, tall glass of whiskey. We talk about the story of the late, great Robert Leroy Johnson, blues legend. He's one of the early ones. Um, when we think of the 27 Club, we think of the more recent members, but these more recent members have something of a debt to owe to some of these earlier members of the 27th Club, this very macabre and morbid, loose collection of people who happen to die at the same digits. So telling you about Robert Johnson, you probably know more than you think. He was a Delta Blues, and his uh, whole legacy bases on two recording sessions he did, two mammoth recording sessions in 1936 and 1937. He was born May 8, people think, in 1911. I say people think because the details of his life are sketchy. And, in fact, his life was sketchy from beginning to end. He was a sketchy character, lots of gaps. And because of all these gaps in his life, lots of myths and legends have grown up around him. Like other members of the 27 Club, there are lots and lots of myths and legends that embellish the story that's at the core of it all. He was a, um, a travelling performer. He's very itinerant. He played in street corners in Duke joints, which is like a barrel house, kind of rough and rowdy places where um, sharecroppers and... Ex-slaves could go and, and uh, have parties and fun, dances, but he didn't have much commercial success in his own lifetime. It's just those two 
recording sessions where he made about 29 distinct songs uh, with 13 alternative takes that still survive upon which his legacy rests. And they recorded in very low fidelity, so they're quite scratchy. It sounds like his guitar is just a bunch of um, elastic bands stretched over a cigar box or something. It's, it, his voice is even a little bit painful at times, um, but that legacy was pretty important. And this is done in hotel rooms, basically, over a couple of days. And these were released in um, 10-inch 78 RPM records, singles. That's significant because unlike other musicians of the time, he actually was pretty savvy about this and thought, right, I'm going to make my songs fit exactly three minutes. And I've been listening to them all day and I've noticed how close he comes to the three-minute mark with all these songs. He just makes them fit. And that's why he did sometimes did two takes as well, just to make them fit. But not much is known about his life outside the Mississippi Delta where he spent most of his life. But there is a very famous legend associated with Robert Johnson, and that is that he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in exchange for his blues gifts and talents. There's even been films about this. So that myth and legend of him selling the soul, uh, the story goes that he met a large black figure at the crossroads and lots of different towns claim this is where the crossroads was where the devil took his guitar off him, tuned it a certain way, played a few songs, gave it back to him, and now he had the gift. And um, maybe that came with a curse as well. But the story is very enduring, and you can't talk about Robert Johnson without talking about him selling his soul to the devil. Of course, the names of his songs also added to this too. He's got songs like Being Pursued by a Hellhound and Me and the Devil and Up Jump the Devil and a song called Crossroads as well. All these things help to perpetuate that myth. He's... Fame really took off after his death, and uh, one fellow called John Hammond, not the paleontologist from Jurassic Park, but a real John Hammond, wanted to get Robert Johnson to play at Carnegie Hall with some of the greats, the Benny Goodmans and the um, Count Basies uh, were going to play there to show a history of the blues from, it's called From Spirituals to Swing. So it's going to go right through the early nuggets, right through to the current jazz of the day. But when he came down to find him, Johnson was inconveniently dead by then. But he didn't forget about him, and we'll come back to him later. Another fellow called Alan Lomax, who was a, uh, another researcher, he also went down to the Mississippi to interview Robert Johnson, and at that time he was still very much dead. And he didn't get to do any interviews, but he did put together a series of Johnson's recordings called King of the Delta Blues. This wasn't released until 1961, but this is the album that really is credited with bringing his work to a much wider audience. Very influential on some British blues people, including Eric Clapton, who called him the most important blues singer that ever lived. And then we have people such as Bob Dylan, Keith Richards and Robert Plant have all mentioned Robert Johnson's musicianship and his lyrics as having a great influence on their styles as well. There's plenty more as well. I think Chuck Berry owes him a debt as well. And a lot of his songs have been covered by other people, become hits for them. A lot of his guitar licks have been borrowed and appropriated by other musicians as well. So he's kind of been woven into our, our blues and rock DNA as a result. So Johnson was born at a very early age, at the age of zero, again, possibly in May 8. His mum, he was born to Julia Dodds and Noah Johnson, but Noah Johnson disappeared pretty soon after that. And Julia was married to somebody else anyway. And actually, she had a few different husbands. And so yeah, young Robert Johnson was kind of moved around from parent to parent, but mostly around the Memphis area. 
changed his name quite a few times and he spent his uh, years in Memphis attending the Carnes Avenue Coloured School. And he had a little bit of education which sets him apart from many of the other um, Delta Blues legends who weren't quite as, as literate as he was. At the age of 17 or so, he, ma- he married and had a child with a 16-year-old Virginia Travis. Unfortunately, she died in childbirth shortly after, which was the habit of the day. But another muse- blues musician called Sun House, another influential blues legend, moved to Robertsonville. And um, he remembered Johnson as a young boy, but said he was, uh, he was pretty good with the harmonica, but he was woeful on guitar. He was a terrible guitar player. But at this time, Johnson left for a place called Martinsville because he'd found out about his real birth father and wanted to find him. And while he was there in, in Martinsville, uh, we don't know if he found his dad or not, but he came under the spell of Isaiah Zimmerman or Ike Zimmerman, who was supposed to have been uh, supernaturally talented as a guitarist and practiced in graveyards at night around midnight. Legend or not, we're not sure, but apparently it was quiet. No one complained. And so he did his practice there. as where he got his guitar technique from. He also managed to find a, another woman with, with which he fathered a child. That was with Virgie Mae Smith and also married someone else called Coletta Craft. She also died a few years later when he took off on his itinerant career. But I mentioned the first one because we think that that particular son had heirs that are still alive today and recently managed to claim about a million dollars or so in, in royalties from having the, um, the Johnson name. While he was here as well, this is where he was supposed to have made his pact with the devil. When he came back to Robinsonville, Sun House heard him play again and said, this is uncanny how he managed to play so well in this is a short space of time. And thus the legend of the pact was born. So he travelled around. It's only about, about a 10-year time when he had, his, he had his career in the small town of, of Memphis and Helena and Arkansas. But sometimes he went further. He went to Chicago, Texas, uh, New York, Canada, Kentucky, Indiana, even in St. Louis. And in these places he would stay with his extended family, or with female friends. So he had quite a gift with the ladies. He didn't marry again, but what he would do was cultivate a woman in each port, more or less, so that he had to stay each time. Jim, I actually thought you were leading us into what may have led to his untimely death because he was a bit of a philanderer. Yeah, oh, yes, and, <laughs> and that is what leads into his untimely death. But I'm yeah. just So, Jim, okay. I heard he was a bit of a philanderer. He was a bit of a philanderer. So when he travelled to all these different places, he would stay with either members of his extended family or with his female friends that he cultivated. And although he didn't marry again, he did have relationships with, you could say, a woman in every port, in every town. And because he changed his name virtually every time as well, they didn't know about each other. So he had just different women in different places where he would stay. And when he didn't know someone, he would depend on seducing someone in the audience and that would be his bed and board for the night. So that was his game plan. As far as his character goes, people have said of him that he was well-mannered, soft-spoken, and he was indecipherable. He seemed to have a very good public presence and very pleasant, but he was reserved in private, sometimes sulky. He liked to go his own way. And he was uh, exceptionally talented, but he had a weakness for whiskey and women. And, of course, his commitment for the road. So when he arrived in a new town, what he would do is he would play for tips on street corners or in front of the barber shop. And he wouldn't play his blues. He would play whatever was popular in the day. So uh, when he was playing on street corners and things, he wouldn't play the dark and moody blues, but he would be playing more popular tunes of the day. So he could always fit in with whatever the crowd wanted, he could do. And that was one of his talents that doesn't come across so much in the recordings because that was all his blues, but that he was a jack of all trades. It wasn't just Delta blues. He could do all kinds of styles with Chicago or anything. Country and Western, a bit of jazz, he could do it all. He had an uncanny ability to get a real rapport with the audience. And 
what he would do was establish links and ties in each town. So when he came back there, whether it was a week later or a month or a year later, and pick up where he left off. He was very friendly. He had a real memory, didn't he? Yeah, well, he he, Really good memory. Just to remember which name he used and and which woman he was with. But sometimes he'd take off middle of the gig. So someone would be playing and then he'd turn around and he'd be gone and he's off on the road again. So he had an interesting kind of way of working. So the recording sessions were, of course, had become famous and that's where some of his great hits came from. And one song that I might share with you, actually, is one that has become, oh, Actually, I won't share it with you because the host has disabled screen sharing. I wonder if we can re-enable screen sharing so I can share this particular. Okay, so (laughs) many of the songs that uh, Robert Johnson recorded initially became classics later on, including uh, this well-known ditty. that would have been um, influential on one of our missing members of the podcast, but uh, he pulled out at the last minute, dear listener, because he said he had other things to do, filling in one of his other many jobs. In a way, he's like this itinerant performer as well, going from town to town with a different lady at each port, but we we won't let his wife know about that. (laughs) So we'll have to edit that out later on. Other songs were like, I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, uh, Crossroad Blues and Terror Pain Blues. Those terraplane blues, though, they became quite uh, famous copies, but not in his own lifetime, more like more after that. He um, also did Stop Breaking Down. Yes, Stop Breaking Down. And, um, Which Stop- I remember the Rolling Stones did a version of that on Exile on Main Street, and I love that cover version. Well, it's funny you should mention that because I actually have this here as well. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> only because um, the Stop Breaking Down, um, it sounds surprisingly modern in that uh, you can recognise... Down. Yeah, stop breaking down. The stuff I got a bunch of brains out, baby. Ooh, it'll make you lose your mind. Now, I reckon it's a bit of a Chuck Berry there, just chucked <laughs> in there. And uh, one of the things that he pioneered, which um, I don't know if you're about to pick it up, or I've got a small guitar here, and it's this kind of. Um, that's accredited to Mr. Johnson, that kind of going from the fifth to the sixth to the fifth to the sixth, which became hugely influential in boogie-woogie piano music as well. He played with a thumb plectrum, so he had a real driving bass. So he's influential on all those other performers as well. He had a higher-pitched voice than the other Delta Blues musicians like Muddy Waters and those guys that we come to know and B.B. Um, King, um, who came from the same kind of origins. So he had a much higher voice. Is a question there, Miss Princess? Um, Jay Moss, did Robert yeah. Johnson also do the five-string different tuning guitar playing that Keith Richards learnt from some of the old R&B blues players? I don't know for sure. There's a lot of dispute about how he tuned his guitar, believe it or not, because people think that his records have been sped up. And a lot of people said, oh, yeah, he's, he sped up his, his records. Um, that's why it's high-pitched and things too. But then a lot of people say, no, no, he didn't, and, and they point to multiple recordings. So I don't know how he tuned it, uh, maybe in the fine print. He may have, 
certainly he had his own style. He had, you might notice from the fingers, he had very long fingers. And some people think he had Marfan syndrome, uh, which a lot of um, famous people had, like Abraham Lincoln and, and uh, Hollywood actors who play monsters because they have very elongated limbs and very long fingers and sometimes detached retinas as well, which give them a kind mm. of otherworldly look. And those very supernaturally long fingers may have helped him in his um, unique guitar-playing style. Again, the recordings don't do it justice. You have to imagine that song um, being covered by the Rolling Stones and you'd, you'd mm. rediscover that kind of energy. But all the details are there. It's just, yeah. uh, you know, recorded on, on some, some pretty average kind of equipment. We get into his death now, which is what I suppose the part everyone wants to hear. The recordings, though, that's, that's 29 songs, and that's what really made his career. Uh, as far as death goes, uh, as you said, Sid, his um, penchant for the ladies did get him in, into hot water, no doubt probably more than once. Mm-hmm. And in one particular, now this is again, when he died, he just vanished from historical record. There was no reporting of his death. And it wasn't until 30 years later that someone tracked down his death certificate. And on the death certificate, it didn't say anything except that he died and where. It didn't say how. And so it, we had to rely on legend. And uh, who knows how accurate that is. But he was in a, um, a juke joint or barrel house playing and flirting with a married woman. And uh, later on, someone handed him a whiskey bottle open whiskey bottle and his friend tried to knock it out of his hand and said don't ever drink from a um, a bottle you haven't seen opened yourself and he said well don't ever try to knock a whiskey bottle out of my hand and drank it and then later on he came down with terrible terrible stomach cramps and uh, he lingered for three days and a lot of pain coughing up blood and things like that before he finally um succumbed so the the people have said it might have been strychnine poisoning but strychnine poisoning is usually faster and you can smell it a mile away even if you're drunk it's got a distinctive odor and taste can't be disguised by uh, whiskey so it probably wasn't that um some other people have suggested Mm -hmm. that it could have been naphthalene which is found in mothballs which is apparently a common way of poisoning people in the rural south but that was rarely fatal however he did have an ulcer and he had some problems with his throat which could have caused an exacerbation of that poisoning and he died from vomiting and bleeding from the mouth your what knowledge of toxicology is very good. It's disturbing. Oh, it, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't know that went with the 27 Club as well, or is that the nature of your job as well? Oh, I think with the 27 Club, you've got to have a little bit of a look at the the, um, the colourful ways that they have died because at 27, it's, it's really natural mm. causes, is it? And, um, I mean, when people die at 27 and they've already achieved some kind of fame, you have to wonder what they would be like if they had lived longer, how much more influential they would have been. Mm. And, um, you know, some of the great works of other people have come when they were well over 27, so we don't know what he would have done. But he's, um, his legend's been claimed by lots of different towns and things, so he's got at least three different gravesites. Most likely he was buried. <laughs> yeah, people said this is where he lives, where he died, but nah. Most likely he died in unmarked grave in a potter's field nearby because transportation was hard and people were poor and he was just a broke musician so he would have been buried in a potter's field and there are also various places that claim to be the original crossroads where he sold his soul and sometimes they have four guitars intersecting and pointing different ways and that is a legend of robert smith have you remembered your, not robert smith robert robert johnson smith. <laughs> he made a cure i think and that young boy became robert smith of the cure <laughs> 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 Didn't die at all. And it's especially the thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> His voice evolved over time. Do you think Tenacious D wrote tribute based on that legend? 
I think everybody's heard the legend, but they may have heard it second, third, and fourth hand, so I don't know whether it's a direct influence, but I'd like to say without any evidence at all, yes. Yes, exactly. Well, it's just... Because um, I want it to be true. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, (laughs) I mean... At least a style parody. Oh, you mean how the devil appears? Yeah, they, you know, the devil appears and they they outplay the devil. That legend's in, you know, the um, the devil went down to Georgia with a mm. fiddle made of gold. It's also right through European literature in the in the story of Dr. Faust. So he sells his soul to the devil. So the Faustian pact is a well-known one in, in literature everywhere. Mm. And there are even some people said, oh, yeah, this is based on an African god, a, a mischief god, who um, is based at crossroads. But there's no evidence for that either. So mm. it's just speculation. But it's good fun. It is awfully good fun, which I think is why the concept of the 27 Club endures. It gives us a focal point. It gives us something to talk about. And, again, you ask the question not of just of Robert Johnson but of many of the people who passed away when they were 27. Had they peaked or were they yet to peak? You don't know. What talent has been lost? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you look at Mick and Keith alone, it took them years to hit their straps. It wasn't until they were 28, 30 that they were really churning out their best stuff. I was going to say, how many other historical figures have, you know, died at that 27 Club? He probably died of syphilis, by the way. Many More people than did. likely with all those things they didn't have a cure for back then. Many people did. Yeah. Yeah. What? What, Captain? Captain, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he probably died of syphilis. <laughs> it's probably quite true. Yes. It was <laughs> deadly. It's just the nonchalant way. You're so funny. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to, like, segue particularly to Kurt Cobain, but I did watch um, the MTV Unplugged one that they did and then I saw a bit of a doco on it. And, yes, that MTV Unplugged, it is a very good live set. It's certainly showing them at their true colours at their time. And then that somebody actually said, look, it probably now really stands out because it was roughly seven months before he died. But what mm-hmm. if he did not die then? Would it be just another good show that they did do? But now it's got special significance because it was about seven months before he passed away. Absolutely. And I think I'm wondering about with the Robert Johnson thing, two albums, yes, great albums, and they'll repackage later on. But uh, what would happen if he did something five years later on? You don't yeah, know yeah. if he, his talent was still growing. That's the same well, as no, people like, you know, Mozart. I think he was not much older than that too. You know, what would he, his fame rests on those works, but they mm. would be considered early works by, uh, you know, other composers' standards. But, yeah, still famous. Mm. I think Mozart passed away at 36. So I think he was lucky to get that far. Yeah, yep. very lucky. He's composer now. Yeah. But funny about that um, Kurt Cobain gig, that was all very blues-based. It was Ooh. very what-based, sorry? Blues. Oh, very bluesy, yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, Captain's lost it. Uh, You've only uh, had one, haven't you, Captain? No, I just... Graham's just so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, about the decomposing. (laughs) It's just so dry. It's brilliant. Like, you just... You'd miss it. I love it. It's amazing. Oh, I picked it up straight away. I'm just glad that I'm I'm done now. (laughs) I can relax. Yeah, I've been been listening to Jim for many, many years and... Oh, it's great. Don't you go changing. That's all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) It's fantastic. Who's going? Yeah, so the the MTV thing about, you know, when Nirvana did that. Yeah. 
I don't know whether you've watched any more of those, like Pearl Jam did one. and uh, Stone Temple well, Pilots. Yeah, like a lot one. of the bands that at very the time. Good. They're mm. all amazing and I think it was just MTV at the time allowed them to be you know, unplugged. It was a very cool thing to do. Mm. So I've actually got a copy of the Pearl Jam one and that is equally as good as the Nirvana one. I think the Nirvana one became perhaps a bit more famous and they released an album of it because he did, you know, pass away. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of part one of our discussion of the concept of and members of the 27 Club. Thank you to my fellow podcasters for participating and thank you, dear listener, for joining us. If you would like to contract us, you can do so at podnoname at gmail.com or at at podnoname on Facebook. Please listen to the next episode of the podcast with no name as we continue our discussion of the 27 Club and its members. Until then, take care. Oh, I'd be happy great. if Pink Floyd died 27 times. Oh, yeah. Pink Floyd, Adele. I'm waiting for Stevie Nicks, yes. Yeah, that's next. Oh, my God, that woman's got a horrible voice. <laughs> <laughs> me? You can only see me. Oh, share screen. Get on oh, da- I'm on the phone view. at the moment. I'm... Oh, Jimbo's there. Good stuff. I'm here. Oh, hang on. Fiona, the captain's there. Good Sid. stuff. And Sid is here. I'm basically just um, checking attendances. Earlier we had Eric Clapton was here, Ronnie Wood was here. We've had a, a lot of people phoned in. Rolling Stones. Gave and interviews. Bloody hell. Yeah. <laughs> Keith was a bit loose endish, so he phoned it in. I'm not going to make it at all. So. All right. You guys keep, keep doing what you're doing. We shall. We shall have fun with that. You're a mortal leader there to steer you in the right direction. So. He is. He likes the um, he likes the power. I think. I, know. I think the, the only problem you have with the Twenty Seven Club is there wasn't enough members. <laughs> <laughs> well, yours yeah. is like the ones who got away.